focuses on the future. What's particularly exciting about the Adaptable Force is that it's a force that's engaged. It's engaged overseas and it's engaged at home. And could Syria have biological weapons? He believes that the Syrian regime now have the capability to weaponise anthrax in particular, I think, and possibly ricin and others. Last week, we were talking about the Army's fourth redundancy round with another 1,400 jobs to go. But it's only around 6% of soldiers who face this uncertain wait. For the service as a whole, the focus is on the future and how it restructures itself. All three of the Army's most senior officers and three of the Army's most senior officers have been talking to us about that work. James Hurst is here to explain. James, is this some kind of concerted PR drive? I- I don't think so. I think it is a, a natural coming together. So I wouldn't say coincidence, but it reflects we are reaching a, a, a one of several key points where a lot of the planning for Army 2020 is beginning to become reality. So this week we've heard from the man with the job of sorting out places for British units coming back from Germany. We've also heard from the General Officer Commanding Germany about lessons to be learned from Britain's time there. But first of all, senior officers from the new Adaptable Force 1 Division have been holding a symposium. They are on the second day of that symposium at Sandhurst, discussing their transition from being uh, armoured to a light role and at lower readiness than the reaction force as the adaptable force. So engagement in the UK is going to be one of their key tasks, including things like helping deal with the the floods that we've Mm. seen in Somerset today. But the General Officer Commanding 1 Div, Major General James Chiswell, told me they still expect to be working right around the world. It's war fighting skills, of course, it's absolutely at the heart of it, as you'd expect with any part of the British Army. But what's particularly exciting about uh, the Adaptable Force is that it's a force that's engaged. It's engaged overseas and it's engaged at home. And what that means is that it, it is out and about in regions of interest overseas, seeking to build understanding of those regions, but also seeking to build relationships uh, in those regions. Uh, and where necessary, um, providing support in those particular countries of, of interest, recognising, of course, um, that in our business, prevention is always going to be better than cure. Now, as the adaptable force takes shape, eventually around a third of its soldiers will be reservists. The GOC Germany, Major General John Henderson, has said that gives us a, a point to think about training and using people in the most efficient and effective ways. The guy who's a vehicle mechanic in the army does a, spends a lot of time doing military training as well as his, um, his vocational uh, experience. So therefore, you might not always need someone who is high-grade military skills and um, sort of higher-grade, you might want higher-grade vocational skills. You might take that person from the reserve, someone who's working at that business full-time, who you give a level of military training, which is enough to make him or her um, sort of effective in role. The other big change for one div, as well as this change of role, change of structure, it just has to move home from Germany. That is a massive job, not just of sorting bases, but also things like housing and schools for military families. It's all called Project Barona, and it's led by Major General Nick Pope. Right now in Germany, there are some 13,000 military troops, and in 2014, we can expect to see nearly 3,000 troops moving back to the United Kingdom. But funny enough, these are more individual moves rather than unit moves. 
The next year will be the major muscle move. You'll see probably about 15 unit moves next year, some 6,000 troops moving back from Germany, leaving the rump of 20 Brigade based around Paderborn. It's an ambitious move, this. I don't think the Army's um, had such a complex move for many, many years. Uh, so the timelines we set ourselves were challenging. I mean, the good news is we're, we are still on target. But while all this is going on, of course, there are still thousands busy soldiering in Afghanistan, 7 Brigade there till the summer, 20 Brigade due to take over and wrap up Operation Herrick at the end of this year. Mm, James, BFBS Defence Analyst Christopher Lee this week joins us via Skype. Hello, Christopher. Hello there. What do you make of all this? The Army's really on the move, isn't it? The Army's had to be on the move. Uh, since 2010, for whatever reasons, whether it was financial or, or normal restructuring, they realised that they had an opportunity, as well as some would say a bit of disaster of losing lots of men and capabilities, uh, an opportunity to really structure the, the services, not just the army, the services to decide what they want to do with it, what they're capable of doing with it. I mean, for example, James talking there about um, people being able to be shipped out pretty quickly to sort a problem before it becomes a disaster. That they've always had the capability of doing, but they haven't really had the command structure to do it. Um, we're talking about there the reservists. There's a sort of slight caveat to it. Uh, people who join the reserves, um, sometimes, let's say, an electrician, may not want to do electrical work when he joins the Army Reserves. He may want to do something else, might want to get an HGV uh, qualification or whatever. But basically, the Army can't do anything about that. They've really, really got to rely on the reserves in a very, very big way. And that one, I don't believe they have sorted yet. And James, this uh, engagement in the UK that you were talking about, and indeed the, this uh, deployment to Somerset to help out there, um, how significant is that, do it, you think? It is not, it's not a new job for the uh, for the armed forces. It's not just the army uh, who've done this kind of thing in the past. What is uh, important about it, what, they're, what the, I think really matters to the army about this kind of engagement is that they want to do with the wrap-up of operations in Afghanistan coming at the end mm. of this year. Um, they want to you know, be, continue to be seen by the British public. The British public has seen them working on behalf of the country in the headlines over the last 12 years or so. Um, and that, you know, is important for, among other things, recruitment. Mm. And they will lose that automatic profile. That is the fear for some. Um, so they want to be able to help. They don't, Major General Chisholm and, and everybody I heard from when I was at that symposium yesterday is absolutely key. Their job will still be centred on war fighting. Mm. But you have got to um, engage with the communities you recruit from not just to help recruit from them, but also to offer something back, because if you offer something back, then people will want to be involved with you. Uh, Christopher, what do you make of this? I mean, I suppose it's a tr transition in public perception of the armed forces, isn't it, as they're withdrawing from Afghanistan? It's a huge perception, and although this is not officially a PR exercise, and it's come quite naturally, and it's aimed at the, uh, let's say, at Staff College uh, level, etc., um, the Army's making it very clear and very public on what it's doing. Let's take one small example of this, and that is the Army's very pleased about the weather at the moment. It can get out there, it can show, as it's done before, remember driving uh, green goddesses, fire engines, mm. uh, foot and mouth uh, uh, disease, etc. The army move in. What's absolutely remarkable, 
The public has got, over the past 10 years, a new view of the army. They're very pro the army in particular, pro the forces in general. When there's a bit of disaster like this, they look around and they say, that's good. There's a guy there with a the green beret. We think he's Royal Marines. doesn't matter what he is. There's a fellow in charge there. He's got a different colour. He's Royal Engineers. Um, he's sorting it out. In fact, he's not sorting it out. He's helping to sort out. It's still the councils that have got to sort this out. There's a meeting tomorrow, for example, of COBRA, the Emergency Committee, the Cabinet Committee. That'll be chaired by Owen Patterson, the Environment Secretary. He is the man in charge. But there's always the sense, isn't there, that the <coughs> military turn up, they know what to do. They've mm. got the chain of command. They're in uniform, not just yellow wearing jackets and helmets. And they will do it. And that's a very good PR exercise. J- James, I'm just wondering, when the Army or the Royal Navy or who, whoever it is, that the Royal Marines, are sent to Somerset, how, how much warning do they get of this kind of thing? Because it, it seems a little, almost a bit late that they're going now. Well, it, it, the, the, you have to, the thing you have to think about this is it's a double-edged sword because uh, the forces don't want to be seen as their job just being to react to this stuff at home and becoming a home guard. But equally, they want to help out and they're happy to help out. There is, uh, certainly, uh, uh, my understanding is, you know, there are some politicians in Westminster who are equally nervous about calling in the forces because it looks like the statutory authorities have lost lost their their grip. So they might be waiting and ready for a while, but equally, this is what they do. They are ready to jump when called. All right, Christopher, stay with us. James, thanks for your time. Sit rep with Kate Still to come, Obama's vision for 2014. Could this be the year Guantanamo Bay is closed? And a survivor of the Holocaust remembers her liberation by British soldiers. This is BFBS. Sit rep. Peace talks aimed at stopping the bloody war in Syria are due to come to an end in Geneva tomorrow. UN mediator Lakhtar Brahimi says he doesn't expect anything substantive to come from the conference, but he was not disappointed and the ice was breaking slowly. Meanwhile, America's director of intelligence has told a Senate committee that Syria may be able to produce biological weapons. Earlier, I spoke to weapons consultant and former commanding officer of the UK's joint chemical, biological, radiological, nuclear regiment, Hamish de Bretton-Gordon. And I asked him what he thought the latest information from the US. I think it is, it is pretty reliable. Uh, James Clapper, about uh, uh, 12 months ago, commented on the Syrian biological programme. However, what he said yesterday is that that programme has now gone beyond just research and he believes that the Syrian regime now have the capability to weaponise anthrax in particular, I think, and possibly ricin and others, to use uh, as a terror weapon. And we've seen in Syria chemical weapons being used, we've seen barrel bombs being used. This is really the next step up in terror. Uh, and the only thing worse would really be nuclear, and, and let's uh, God hope that he, he doesn't have a, a access to nuclear weapons. How do you weigh up this information against the fact that Bashar al-Assad seems to have agreed to get rid of his chemical weapons? How's that progress going? Well, uh, h- how do we gauge the information first? I think it's I think it's very good information, and certainly the, the, the doctors who I advise in Syria have mentioned this to me before. Um, so I, I, think, I think it is credible. When we look at what's happening with the chemical weapons removal process, now we know that that's not going very well at all. Uh, less than 5% has been taken out of Syria. Um, the complete arsenal of over 
1,300 tonnes is due to be out by this time next week. Now, that's not going to happen. Um, it would appear from very reliable sources that the majority of the chemical weapons stockpile and precursors that are due to come out of Syria are probably stuck somewhere north of uh, Damascus and the regime are having great difficulty moving them through opposition-held areas. There, there is also a possibility that the regime are dragging their feet because, um, you know, this is a, a, a process they've been using that's been keeping the international community at arm's length. So, you know, they might well be thinking as long as they have chemical weapons in Syria, then, you know, USA in particular are not going to go to any kinetic action. So I think there's a bit of both and it's, it's not going well. And really, we're almost in a position where we need to look at a plan B. If we can't get them out of Syria, then that being the chemical weapons, then perhaps we should destroy them. And there is only a very small amount of the very worst chemical weapons that we know of, perhaps destroy them in Syria. And we should start be thinking about that now. Assuming that this latest information is true and you are advising the international community, what do you think the action should be? Well, I think, first of all, with any new threats that develop, you need to have a mitigation strategy in place. Uh, and at Secure Bio, only yesterday, we issued a threat warning for chemical and biological terrorist activity around the Sochi uh, Olympics because uh, we we are fairly certain there's been proliferation of chemical and biological weapons out of Syria. So I think first of all it's to make sure that we've got mitigation strategies um, in place and then continuing the pressure on the regime that the P5 have done, particularly through Russia I expect and Iran, to make sure that those biological weapons are not used against the civilian population and also are secured because the thought of biological weapons being av available to al-Qaeda and other terrorist groups around the world are, are pretty, are almost too horrific to think of at this stage. Weapons consultant Hamish de Breton Gordon. Uh, Christopher, will these statements from the US about biological weapons have an impact on those talks about Syria going on in Geneva? No, I don't think they will. I mean, this is something that's been going on for some time. Just be well more point. James Clapper, the security chief in Washington, was actually saying that it got, on a limited scale, something beyond the R&D state. They haven't actually worked out how you deliver these systems. If you want to have a crack at them, and actually destroy them or, or, or prevent them, um, then what you do, you go for the delivery systems. There's no point having big pots of the stuff if you can't deliver it. But on the question of the, of the, of the talks themselves, no, the, the talks are in, a, in a, such an early stage. They're almost talks about talks. And I think that we get down the line further, we will probably be having to say to them how much of, the, of that CW has come out. That's particularly important. But if it doesn't come out, then you have to secure it yourself. And you can actually say, right, we, we, we go in there, or somebody has to sort of to authorise and then monitor the destruction of those systems. It's not such a big deal when it comes to the, 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 the long-term project, and that is actually getting some sort of peace settlement. You won't get that at Geneva at the moment. It may take a year, two years. Well, let, let's talk about those talks about talks. The BBC's diplomatic correspondent Bridget Kendall has been in Geneva where they've been taking place. Uh, Geneva 2 closes tomorrow, Bridget. What goes on to bring about Geneva 3? 
Oh, hi. Well, yes, it's not exactly that Geneva 2 closes tomorrow. What closes is the first round of these peace talks. And the whole long process, which, as Chris says, some people think could last years, think the Middle East peace talks, how long they've gone on, mm. um, that the whole process is called Geneva 2. So this first round, which uh, began, actually, they got down to talking in the same room together for the first time last Saturday, but it was sort of launched the, fr- the Wednesday before, so it's lasted between six to ten days, depending on how you count it. And they're all due to um, have their final meeting probably tomorrow and go home for about a week, and then, all being well, they should come back and go into round two. And um, Lakhtar Brahimi, who's the UN negotiator who's um, chairing this and basically running it, Um, He's already said he doesn't expect anything substantive to come out of this first round because, as Chris says, it's kind of getting to know you stage and just the tiniest, um, tiniest thing that can be counted as some sort of collaboration between them, even agreeing to be in the same room together. Dead, is seen as progress at this point, let alone c- coming onto the substance of getting something properly agreed that could make an impact. And you, you've been there following it all. Is that what you think the biggest achievement is, is just being able to sit down in the same room? It is actually. that You know, expectations were so low. If you roll back the clock to before this started, on the very eve, the weekend before, the opposition was still voting in Istanbul whether to come or not. Um, quite a large number of people walked out uh, and uh, they agreed to come. And then they said, oh, no, we're not going to because it looked, seemed as though Ban Ki-moon, the UN Secretary General, was inviting Iran. That was that was disinvited, that invitation. So then the opposition did turn up. And then there was a hiatus because on, on day one, it seemed as though the foreign minister leading the Syrian delegation might go home again. So just the fact that they're still here after a week feels like progress. And have you a better idea of how much the main characters at the table do indeed represent the rebels or Assad? Well, I think the Damascus delegation definitely represents President Assad. There are some quite senior ministers there, the information minister, foreign minister, deputy foreign minister, one of his advisers. Uh, They're pretty senior and um, they are no doubt reporting directly back to him. And uh, I think what will be interesting if they come back for a second round in a week's time is one thing that Damascus might do is dilute that delegation, say Geneva's not getting anywhere, it's not that important, and send less important people. Opposition side, it's more complicated. This is a weakness for them. They only represent people in emigration from Istanbul, and one of the things they've got to do in the the next week is reach out to other opposition groups and civil society groups and fighters inside Syria so they can represent, claim to represent more people. Yeah, I was going to bring up, come on to that to ask you, the talks here, how much of an impact can they really have on what's happening on the ground? Well, you know what's interesting? When I was in Geneva, everyone was saying, calling their friends and families in Syria, everybody's watching Geneva. You know, everyone had said it didn't matter, it was irrelevant, but actually everyone was watching it because in this 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 country, which for three years has been in this mayhem and, and gr- ever grimmer situation, any glimmer of hope, any sign that something political might change the status quo, they have grasped on. And that's, I think, been the reason why neither delegation have walked out. They know they're playing to the gallery back home, to their supporters. Mm. They don't want to be blamed. And that in itself is quite interesting. All right, Bridget Kendall, thank you very much for your time. On Monday, thousands of events were held around the world to mark Holocaust Memorial Day. Gina Turgel was a Polish Jew who spent time in various concentration camps, finally ending up in Bergen-Belsen, where she was eventually freed by British troops. She spoke to BFBS reporter Laura Hawkins about her time in captivity. There were 55 men and one girl, like my sister, 
They had to dig their own grave and they had to undress and they'd been shot. And that was my sister. Then we had to carry wood for their bodies to be burned. Now, can you imagine? For a mother, now that this is a child there and she's carrying wood for the body to be burned. So, unfortunately, your your siblings did were murdered. That's the only way you can say by the Nazis. And then you and your mum went on to one of the concentration camps. We walked on foot to... We didn't... We were going to Auschwitz. We went during the night. We slept in stables and bitter cold... At that point, I must tell you, I felt it would be so much better if they shoot us. And I was really hoping, because the starvation and the fear and the frost was impossible to describe. Now, when you got to Auschwitz with your mother, you said you went into what you thought was a shower room, but actually it was a gas chamber. We walked in, we were trembling. A little while later, water came through. I scalded water. One day before we drank it, we were so dry, thirsty. And we showered ourselves, and then the water stopped. We came out of there, and the women who worked there screamed, Oh, we, you are alive. How wonderful to see you and embracing us. I said, What are you talking? Why are you so shouting? But they said, Don't you know where you've been? I said, No, where? You were in a guest chamber. Now, when was the first time you, you heard of the liberation and you heard those British troops coming to the camp? I heard the noise. And I lift my, my head up and I saw tanks passing by. Oh, I thought, oh, they requisitioned some tanks. I didn't, couldn't distinguish what nationality. The gates opened and we heard voice and two loudspeakers in all languages. We, British, we came to liberate you. The Nazis, the Germans got nothing more to say to you. Be happy. The British troops were most fantastic. There are no words to express. They installed water. They brought the foods. Their own food they gave, their own ration they gave it to us. And everybody, they were going around. It was... Absolutely most fantastic, most feeling. That was Gina Turgle speaking to Laura Hawkins. President Obama has said it's time that America moved off a permanent war footing. In his annual State of the Union address, the US president said it was time for a new era of diplomacy and intelligence, rather than focusing on military operations. He also said 2014 should be the year the detention centre at Guantanamo Bay is closed. Professor Michael Stathis from the University of Southern Utah joins us on the line, and Christopher Lee is still on Skype with us. Uh, Professor Stathis, what have we learned? about the way U.S. foreign policy and defense strategy is going from this speech? It's hard to, uh, uh, to make a prediction that everything said in the State of the Union address uh, is going to translate into policy. Um, it is, it is, in part, it is a wish list. Uh, in part, um, uh, it is a message to Congress to help. Uh, but uh, we can hope. 
And uh, there were a couple of very hopeful messages in this speech. Mm. Uh, For me, perhaps the biggest one uh, was a promise to finally Hmm. close Guantanamo. So you think not a wish list, but a commitment this time, a real commitment? We hope so. He has said it in other speeches and has run into uh, legal and political roadblocks. But uh, uh, the tone was a little bit sterner this time, and I know the pressure is great. And, uh, well, uh, for those of us who are of a, a, shall we say, liberal bent in this country, Hmm. this has been our single greatest disappointment in this president. But uh, I think this may be the year. I think he is very much committed to actually pulling the plug. Uh, Christopher, regarding future engagements, he stressed that the U.S. needed to fight the battles that need to be fought, not large-scale deployments that drain our strength and may ultimately feed extremism. Is this some kind of admission of failure on Afghanistan and Iraq? It just means it's a new stage. It's a complete new stage and recognition. Afghanistan has worked as far as we know yet. Uh, Iraq most certainly hasn't worked at all. Also, that publicly they're not so popular. And when you consider that in uh, foreign policy generally uh, doesn't figure in the electorate's view of, of, of the world, and there's an election coming up in 2016, um, they have to be sort of um, not dismissed, but they have to say, yeah, this is how we feel, this is our sort of philosophy. However, where is the United States militarily and foreign policy looking? To the Pacific, mm. to China etc. And nobody's going to war in China. Nobody's going to war in the Pacific. But the point is, is the, is the effort is there. The other thing, just one small thing, um, Michael's saying, you know, we've heard this about Guantanamo before. This is the fifth of the State of the Union messages. I heard this in number one. I also listened very carefully to James Clapper, the security chief, and he said the whole anti all counter-terrorism operation could be focused now in Syria, because Afghanistan, what was Afghanistan training people to go back to their countries to fight, to cause trouble, to cause mayhem, cause murder, is now being set up in training camps in Syria. Mm. Um, you can take somebody from Syria and put them in Guantanamo, and I think that could very easily happen. Pro- Professor Stathis, what he said on yeah. drones, interesting. Is there an acceptance that their use needs to be more carefully considered in future? Oh, I think very definitely. Um, the uh, experiences in Iraq and Afghanistan uh, have been draining not only in terms of blood and uh, treasure, uh, but they have uh, uh, they've bled the uh, morale of, of a populace. Uh, this is a country that is war-weary, uh, and uh, it, will, it will have to be an incident that uh, uh, critically threatens uh, vital interests or national security before I think there's going to be very much support for another adventure. Now, Chris is absolutely right that uh, anti-terrorism attention uh, is shifting rather dramatically uh, from Afghanistan. Of course, in the speech, um, an end to Afghanistan uh, figured very prominently. And um, I think that this is going to be the year that... uh, uh, there's going to be a significant drawdown. Uh, now, Obama mentioned uh, both American forces and allied forces in Afghanistan, of course, and so this will take a good deal of diplom- diplomatic effort uh, a- as well. And diplomacy was another key in this speech. 
um, uh, Obama has stressed from uh, the time he ran for president that diplomacy must not be considered a reward for countries that play uh, uh, play well, mm. but it is a process. It is a process that must be used to avoid uh, some of these uh, very negative situations that the United States has blundered into uh, so often over such a long period of time. All right, Professor Michael Stathis from the University of Southern Utah, thank you for your time today. Um, Christopher, um, before we finish today, let's talk briefly about the Winter Olympics, which begin in Sochi next week. The British Olympic Association has said Team GB athletes should wear understated kit while travelling to the Games. It said there was no information or advice suggesting an increase in the threat level, but it was a, a common-sense approach to wear the less overtly branded team kit. Is that, is that a normal kind of thing to do? It's, it's a normal thing that teams are told that. Um, but if you, and if you go back to the 1970s and the Munich uh, Winter Games there, where the, there was a massacre, that has always been the case. The other thing to remember, of course, is the, the British involvement in this. And a lot of the advice they're getting is coming from British intelligence. GCHQ, um, MI6, etc., are giving the, um, giving the Russians uh, intelligence briefs as they see it, on what the threat is. We know about the threat of, uh, of, of, of perhaps bombs uh, at those games, and targeting is very easy because once you get into the games moving, uh, athletes move around, it could be very, very easy to take a hit, and that, and that, that is the worry. It's been the worry of every single games, including the, the, the games in London where we had missiles on the top of Obama blocks. All right, Christopher, thank you very much for your time today. My thanks to all of our guests. If you'd like to join the debate, we're on Twitter. You can tweet us at BFBS SITREP. Remember, you can listen again to the programme on our website, bfbs.com slash SITREP. We're back at the same time next week, but for now from me, Kate Chabot. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye for now. Sports, sports and music, music for the British forces. This is BFB.